thought my voice was really giving out. Thank you. Shout really loud now. Anyway. He made an inspection of the wall, and as, he, uh, as we got to the end of that text, we recognized that he had at that point not told anyone there yet what he was planning on doing. And again, I, uh, you, if you were here then, you, you heard that, or if you listened to the message, you heard that. But uh, I just want that to sink in once again, because it, there's a careful process that Nehemiah is going through as he's laying the groundwork for what God wants him to do. And he arrived there with some people from Susa, where he was coming from, but he had not yet told anyone what he was going to do. So he shows up, he's, he's, he's making these rounds at nighttime, he's, he's having interaction with people, but he finally now in today's text is going to break the news to the people who live there, the people who are actually going to do the work, that this is what God is asking him to do. So let's start in verse 17 and read through the end of the chapter of chapter 2. Then I said to them, Nehemiah speaking. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you were doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Short text, four verses, lots of stuff, lots of ground to cover. Let's jump in. Let's begin with this slide right here. The first part of Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17. As he approaches the people, he lays the problem out for them. You see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. He begins to expand to them what he has been feeling inside of him for the last number of months already. What, what a disgrace it is. But I want you to be studious readers of the word. We're going we're gonna to jump right in, so I hope you're ready to go. By the way, there's a handout on the back side of the bulletin. If you don't already know that, you can follow along. I want you to be studious readers of the word. Look carefully what he says. See if you can find something that you might not say if you were the one talking. It's a two-letter word. It comes right at, towards the beginning there. In fact, it's the first two-letter word you see in the sentence. You see the trouble. Hold on. Where's Nehemiah from? Where's he been this whole time? Does he have anything to do with the people in Jerusalem? Is he living there? Is that his area? Is that his? Is that where he's from? Is that, is that? Why does he say we? There's a couple of answers we could give, but as I've been going through this, I've been trying to point out to you what I think are good principles of godly leaders, and here is one of them right away. A godly leader sees himself as part of the whole. He doesn't separate himself. We have a tendency to do that, by the way. Even as parents, as a dad, I have a tendency to do that sometimes. To say, well, I'm here, and if there's trouble in my family, I'm removed from it. It's them. They're, 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 the kids were doing this, or, or she's not doing what she's supposed to. Or this, I remove myself from that. A godly leader sees himself as part of the whole. When Nehemiah came and told them, hey, there's trouble happening here. There's, this, there's, there's stuff lying in ruins, and that's not a good reflection on you. 
he includes himself in it and says, that's not a good reflection on us. We are in trouble. Now, just a quick history lesson to make sure you understand what this is like. From the book of Lamentations, we get some fantastic words. As, 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 excuse me, as Nehemiah says, you see the trouble we were in, let's remind ourselves what kind of trouble they really were in. I'm going to read from uh, Lamentations chapter 2. If you want to turn there, you can. I'm going to read a number of verses. Lamentations chapter 2, verse 8. Look at the overlay of what we're seeing. This, by the way, is happening before Nehemiah. This has already happened. This is stuff that was going on when Jerusalem was, was ruined, and Jeremiah the prophet is writing this stuff down. The Lord determined, it says in verse 8, Lamentations chapter 2, the Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. There it is right there. We're reading the book of Nehemiah, right? This is beforehand. This is while it's happening. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. Nehemiah is a recipient of looking to the other side of this and saying, this is what's happened. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among na the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes, Jeremiah says, my eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. We cry to their mothers, where is, sorry, they cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city. As their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare... To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. Can I stop for a minute? I know you're listening. You're doing a good job paying attention, I hope. But can I stop for a minute? Verse 14, there's a really, as we don't have time for this, there's a really key thing there that, that reflects on the leadership of the church in the, in the world today. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity. If we're not willing to point out sin, notice what it says. The way to restore fortunes is to expose your iniquity. Do you see the connection that's made there in verse 14? The way to expose your fortunes is to expose iniquity. Not like we would think. We think if we cover it up and pretend it doesn't exist, we can keep on having the, the blessing of God. We can keep on having fortunes. But, that, sorry, let me just uh, finish that verse. Let me go on verse 15 now. All who pass along the way, clap their hands. I have this up on the screen to you. All who pass along the way, clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss. They gnash their teeth. They cry, we have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we long for. Now we have it. We see it. Just a bit of a recap in case you forgot what the situation was in Jerusalem. This is what Jeremiah lived through. He saw it happen. And now, years later, 70 years later, to be, well, a little more than 70 years later, actually, uh, they, they, there's a partial restoration, but the city is still lying in ruins. And Nehemiah says, look around you. The gates are still burned. We are in trouble. But friends, let's not leave a historical text back in history only. For we must ask ourselves, I'm supposing we have been asking ourselves, are we in trouble? 
are we in trouble today? Can we look around? Do we find ourselves, have anything that I read there from Lamentations as to what was happening, do we see any of that happening today? Let me give you this reflection. Also before the exile, in Ezekiel, God said this through Ezekiel. You have become guilty by the blood you, that you have shed. You have become guilty by the blood that you have shed and defiled the idols that you have defiled by the idols that you have made, and you have brought your days near. The appointed time of your years has come. Are we listening? Are we in trouble today? Can God say the same thing about us today? That we have become guilty by the blood that we have shed and defiled by the idols that we have made. If so, he says, you have brought your days near. The appointed time of your years has come, and he goes on to say this, Therefore, I have made you a reproach to the nations and a mockery to all countries. Those who are near and those who are far from you will mock you. Your name is defiled. You are full of tumult. I would think today, as we sit in the United States of America, there might be a wee bit of room for us to say, if it looks like things are in tumult around us, perhaps we should look into God's word and see some reasons why this might be true. I submit I just read a few of those. If then as we carry ourselves along with the historical story of Nehemiah, we are so grateful, I am so grateful that Nehemiah wasn't done talking. He didn't just come to them and say, hey, look, the city is in ruins. Look at the trouble we're in. The gates are down. But he went on to say what he wants to have happen. He says, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Derision. What an interesting word. It's the looking down upon. It's the sneering at. It's the, it's the elevating of one person or one thing or one person above somebody else. Looking on them with derision. He says, come, let's build the wall back up again so that we may no longer suffer this derision. And as they were sitting there and letting that soak in and wondering, what does he have in mind? Where should we go with this? How can this be? He goes on and says to them in verse 18, and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also for proof of how that had been for good, the words that the king had spoken to me. The letter, I'm sure he pulled out the letter that he carried that had the king's own words on them. He says, come, let's rise up and let's build and listen how God's hand has been upon me. Listen to what God has already done. Friends, I'm convinced though the world around us does seem to be falling apart, we must be able to find some things that God is doing, for God does never sleep or slumber. There are good things happening, like baptisms happening all, ac all across this country, in fact, like people's hearts being stirred, like a recognition. You know, we might say that one of the best things for us is a recognition that our lives will end and that there are things outside of our control, because that sets us up to look to the one who can help us in that situation, which is Jesus. Come, let's build the city, and I'll tell them how God's hand was upon them for good and the words of the king, and here's what they say. We're just going to move right on through this because here's what they say. Look at their response. You know what it is. And they said, you say it. Let's rise up and build. By the way, I love, you, you know I'm a sucker for this kind of stuff when the God's word is so, it's just, it's, I call it understated, but it's, it's so powerful and yet it doesn't go on making flowery or, you know, sometimes, sometimes, 
people, when we as humans write things down, sometimes to make it sure that we can really convince someone, we use all kinds of brilliant language and all kinds of, all kinds of proofs and all kinds of ongoing in, uh, incontrovertible things that just stack up. And, and God's word often, I find, just does stuff like this. There's not long, flowery sentences. There's not, there's not, it doesn't go on for pages and pages trying to convince us to see what happens. It says, let's rise up and build. By the way, it's even more beautiful and even more powerful in the original language. Do you want to know how many words are in that sentence there? Well, not counting the end. They said. That's one word. They said. It's actually just said. It's this. Kum bana in the Hebrew. Rise, Build. Don't you love that? There's something, about, there's something about what God does inside of us through his Holy Spirit by his grace that says, this isn't right anymore. Rise and build. I'm not okay with this anymore. I'm not okay with the derision. I'm not okay with the burn gates. I'm not okay with the trouble that we are in. Let's rise and let's build. This is the little phrase that we're going to see through. Now, he's actually already referred to it once when he says, come, let's build. He's using those same words. They respond by saying, we're going to do it. You see this interplay back and forth. This, if we would see this written in the original Hebrew, we'd see this interplay back and forth. He comes to them and says those words. They respond with the exact same phrase saying, we're in. We're in. And so it says, they strengthened their hands for the good work. But we've got to see something here, brothers and sisters. We can't just casually read the Word of God and say, oh, these are great thing, little stories. And, and We've got to see things here. Do you see the connection that was just made? Do you understand how this is so important theologically what we're reading in history here? Look at what, go, just let your eyes travel back up a little bit. In verse 18, and I told them of the hand of my God upon me for good. And when they say we're going to rise and build, then what do they do? They strengthen their hands for the good work. You see the, you see the compliment that's happening. You see the mirror that's happening. You see the beauty of what God is laying out for us. For the truth remains that no good work will ever come out of our hands unless God's hand of good is on us. Right? We will not build fences and put gates on and, and, and save the church of America unless God's work, his hand is on us for good work. It doesn't work any other way. What do our hands find to do otherwise unless God's hand is on us? Merlin, you talked about that a little bit. Unless I'm abiding in Christ, unless I'm, I'm resting in him and I'm in him in prayer and in the word and in fellowship with people, I find all kinds of not so good things to do pretty quickly. There is a direct connection being made as this goes back and forth. There's a direct connection being made. They strengthened their hands for the good work. Here are the spiritual principles that you and I glean from this. God's word says this very clearly. Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We talked a little bit about this in our Sunday school class this morning. So I love the fact that it came, it came out there and it's going to come out here again. So those of you who were in our Sunday school class, here's round number two. The things we do would not be possible other than the hand of God in us doing them if they're good things. Are you okay with that? Do you actually agree with that? Do you actually believe that? Or do you think there's a little bit of good inside of you that you can scrounge up somewhere that you can provide some kind of value to God by what you're doing apart from his grace and his spirit working in you? In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, we read these words. Sorry, verse, yeah, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. 
not ours, his might. We could say much more about that, but this is the fitting text that comes from Ephesians chapter 6. Because what follows in Ephesians chapter 6, by the way, who knows what follows these verses in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10, all the way down to 17, 18 around there. What, what, what do we commonly call that text about? What is it about? The armor of God, yes, it's a familiar passage. It should be a familiar passage. It's the armor of God, which is all about the battle that we are facing, right? All about the spiritual battle that's going on. We should be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And guess what the very next verse says back in Nehemiah? As, as Nehemiah is standing there saying, listen, we're in trouble. Look at, this, look at the city. Look at the wall. Look at the gates around us. We're in trouble. But listen, let's rise up and build this. And I'll tell you all about how God has helped me do this. And how the king even gave me this letter and all the words. And they all responded and said, rise, build. And they strengthened their hand for the good work. And the very next verse says what? These two that are now become three, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? What do you think you're up to? You see, it wasn't all friendly, friendly ears there, was it? It wasn't all those that were just saying, yeah, let's go, rise, build. It was those, hold on, what do you think you're doing? We already read earlier in chapter 2 that they didn't like it. They didn't like that someone came and wanted to show favor to the Jews. Wanted to rebuild the city. By the way, Again, have I said it like this is the third time? Let's be careful readers of God's word. We miss things so easily. We, we get caught in these arguments with people all the time, and we don't pay attention to the actual words. That are, look at the questions they're asking. Look at the questions they ask. What is this that you were doing, and are you rebelling against the king? Look at what Nehemiah just told them. Nehemiah actually bo answered both of those questions already, Right? What is this that you're doing? Nehemiah just told them. This is what God has asked me to do. Are you rebelling against the king? Nehemiah just told them that the king sent the letter along and showed them what the, what the king had said. So the proof was, they weren't asking that. Do you see how, do you see how the distraction comes? Do you see how, how the enemy is always unbuilding what wants to be, what's, what's trying to get built? Always. And the questions, we, this happens to us all the time. People ask us these questions and they're already answered. We're going to see how Nehemiah responds in a little bit. But I want to get back to what's really happening at the root of this. Because as they ask the questions, the, 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 the intent is really in the words that come before that. They jeered at us and they despised us. Can you notice, can you notice how direct this opposition is to what just happened? Think back. Now we, I know we're covering like just a couple of verses, so we don't have to go back that far. Nehemiah just said, come, let's build the wall so that we will suffer no more derision. And the very next thing that happens, what? They suffer derision. Like, they get despised. You, you see how the enemy works. You see that right away, the thing that he knows will actually happen when we follow through in obeying God's word, he comes and tries to convince us that it's not worth it, that we're going to suffer that no matter what. It's a lie, but it's what he does. They come right away and they say, they jeer at them, they make fun of them. By the way, that word literally, that word jeer, that word literally means to uh, act as if you're a foreigner, like, like babble, like, like as if you like make fun of somebody by making like babbling noises, babbling sounds. That's what, that, that's what that means. That's what they did. They made fun of them and they despised them. 
They derided them. They suffered derision in the short term to try to head off what the enemy is doing here is to try to head off what God is doing in the long term. But Nehemiah doesn't get into a big argument with him, does he? In fact, we see Nehemiah do what a godly leader always does, should always do. A godly leader quickly deals with problems. Quickly deals with problems. I suppose I'm not the only one. Let me just take a little, little, little breather from right there. I suppose I'm not the only one, but I have these times when something isn't, something has to be said to correct someone or something is, has to be said that I don't want to say or has to be done that I don't want to do. A problem has to be dealt with. Maybe it's with my children. Maybe it's here at church. Maybe it's some other arena, something that I don't want to say to someone. And I, I often just try to push it back, right? That phone call I don't want to make. The meeting with someone I don't want to have. The words I don't want to say to someone. Maybe you're like that too. I don't know. But as I was reading this this week, that specifically was one of the things that sort of slid across the desk to me, if I can use that phrase, slid across the desk to me, like the Holy Spirit tapped me on my heart and said, godly leaders deal with problems right away. They take care of them. That's what you're there for, right? If you're in that position, that's your responsibility. And you deal with it. You don't feel sorry for yourself. You don't say, I'd rather not do that. I'd rather pretend it's not there. Maybe, maybe it'll go away. Maybe someone else will deal with it. I'd rather not make someone not like me. I'm afraid they, I won't come out right or they will get mad at me or whatever it is. When the opposition came, Nehemiah answered directly, immediately. He didn't say, well, let's come aside here and let's have a little chat. Let's have a discussion about this. He said these words. The God of heaven will make us prosper. He will. And we, his servants, will. And look what he says. Same two words. Cum banal. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. There's a couple of pretty significant things that are stated here in this answer. It's only one sentence, but there's a couple of pretty significant things that come out in this answer. First of all, he says, we're not having a discussion where there's some kind of battle about responsibility or authority because I'm going to appeal to the highest authority right away. The God of heaven will make us prosper. He sent me to do it. We will prosper. And we, his servants, you can say anything you want. You can do anything you want. And we're going to see the outpouring of, the outflowing of this a little bit in chapter 4 down the road here. You can do whatever you want, but we, his servants, we will rise up and build. Since the God of heaven has asked us to do this, we will do this. You can talk all you want. You can threaten all you want. You can say what you want, but we are going to do this. And then he says something that I think is pretty critical when we today are fighting the enemy. You know all those times when Satan comes and he whispers things to us about, you're not good enough, you, didn't, you messed this up too much, you, you, uh, this person, you don't like, they don't like you, no one accepts you, uh, no one wants to be around you, uh, all those things, God can't really, doesn't really love you, God can't really protect you, God can't really help you in this situation, 
whatever lies he may be bringing to you. Nehemiah looks at him straight in the face and says, you know what, these things are gonna happen, but let me remind you of something. You have no portion. You have no right. You have no claim. This is not any of your business, not any of your territory. You are locked out of this. You know the reality is when God is doing things in our lives, that's exactly the position where Satan is at. He has no claim or right or portion. He's locked out of it. He forfeited that when he chose to rebel against God. And maybe we should remind him of that a few more times in our lives. When he comes to pester, when he comes to lie, when he comes to, to put us in bondage and say, listen, God wants to do this work in me and it is going to happen. And can I remind you, devil, you do not have any part in this, in this, in the kingdom of God. You have no right to it. You forfeited that. It reminds me a little bit. Maybe the story in the, uh, in the book of Acts, in the story of Simon the magician. Let me just turn there and read a couple of verses from there. As the gospel begins to go forth, people make conversions. They're scattered because of the death of Stephen. And, uh, and uh, Philip goes out and proclaims the gospel in Samaria. And then the apostles come when they heard that there's believers in Samaria. Uh, Peter and John come. They pray for the Holy Spirit to come, for they hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. And the Holy Spirit comes down. And one of those people that had made a conversion of faith was a man called Simon. Simon the magician. He converted. But... It says in verse 18, now when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He offered them money for the ability to lay his hands on people and bring the Holy Spirit to them. But Peter said to him, listen to what Peter said, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Here's the crux of it. The enemies, the opposition back in Nehemiah's day, same thing that happened with Simon the magician. Their hearts were not right. They did not want the true things that God was after. And because of that, now this comes as maybe encouragement, it also can come as some warning. Because as a result of their heart not being right, that's what brought about the statement that said, you have no right, you have no part, you have no lot, you have no portion, you have no claim. Let's be oh so careful ourselves as we again reflect on how Nehemiah responded to the opposition, how we respond to the enemy, but let's be oh so careful that we ourselves in our own lives keep our hearts right. So that we don't hear. This is what Jesus meant, by the way, when he talks about that great day coming. And he says, I will look at some of you, even though you did many great, wonderful things, and say, depart from me, for I did not know you. You have no part. You have no portion. You have no right. Your heart was not right. The intent of your heart was not right. So much history. So much application for us. Let's instead take on the words of the psalmist in Psalm 20, verse 5. He said, may we shout for joy over your salvation, God, and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Let's quickly put ourselves in the camp of God. Let's with joy proclaim his salvation. He's the one who's doing it. And let's in the name of God set up his banner over us so that we have a part or a portion 
or a claim or a right in the heavenly city. The God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. As we have been moving through Nehemiah, I've been trying to take my time, and maybe you're tired of hearing me talk about it, maybe think we should be moving past this, but I've been trying to take my time to make sure, are we really willing to assess the damage that's happening around us? Are we really willing to look at the places, there's gaps in the wall, the, the, the gates are burned by fire, that there's things that are not like they ought to be in our country, in our church, in our families, and yes, with us personally. Are we really willing? Because it is only when we are ready to go to that place and really look at the devastation, the trouble that we are in, that we can hear the words, rise, come, let's build that wall back up. And I'm trusting as we're going through that as you're hearing that from me, as I'm giving that exhortation, church, let's rise and build the walls back up, that you're willing to say, yes, I'm in. Yes, I want to do this work. But I want to make one more point today with a sermon that I think is really important. Albert, I love that you shared this morning about roots and roots going down deep. I, I certainly take it as a really nice compliment that you were, I mean, you were not happy with those two big roots, but I take it as a nice compliment that you named one of them after me. But I want to make sure that our theological roots go down really, really deep. Correctly. We like to see ourselves as the heroes of the story. We like to have in us the results that say, I'm going to change the world, or I'm going to change this, or I'm going to be the, I'm going to be the one that looks, comes out looking like is the knight in shining armor. As I say that, I believe that God made us that way because he wants to call us to great things. But I also believe that much of that gets distorted by our own selfish humanity that puts ourselves in places we ought not to be. We talk about this kind of stuff in our Sunday school classroom a lot. I appreciate that a lot because I need the reminder a lot. Many, 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 many times as we read Old Testament stories and we find people and we look at them and they're the heroes of the story, we mentally often put ourselves in their place and say, that's who I want to be. I want to be Daniel. I want to be David. I want to be Nehemiah. I want us to understand that first and foremost, all of those men and women that you see in the Old Testament that are, that are the heroes of the story are types of Jesus Christ. First of all, they are pointing to Jesus Christ. They're not pointing to us. They're pointing to Jesus. Let me show you what I mean very clearly. Just in the text here today, Nehemiah is looking around. He's, he's consumed with the fact that we're in trouble. We're suffering derision. And then they get, he, he gets jeered at. He gets despised. Let me take you to a scene in the New Testament. This comes from the Gospel of Mark chapter 5. This is the scene where, uh, where Jesus comes to heal the man Jairus' daughter. You remember this story, right? On the, while he's on his way there, he gets stopped by the woman with a blood issue. Have you ever noticed, by the way, that the woman has been bleeding for 12 years and the little girl that he brings back to life is 12 years old? But as they come to the house, he's interrupted because of this woman with a bleeding issue. He heals her. And while he was still speaking, they come and say, you may as well not come. The daughter is dead. And I'm going to pick up reading in verse 38. They came to the house. This is Mark chapter 5. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? This child is not dead, but sleeping. And what does it say in verse 40? And they laughed at him. 
and they laughed at him. But he put them all aside and outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said, Talitha kumi, which means, all the Bible quizzers know this, but they're not paying attention. Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. But I want you to see that when Jesus walked into that room that day, and he, the author of life, told them. Now, they didn't know that, granted, so I shouldn't be too hard on them. But he told them, she's not dead but sleeping. They laughed at him. But it goes on even beyond that, because when we read in Luke chapter 23, as he's coming before Pilate, it says that they began to accuse him. They began to say, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. It sounds a little bit like jeering and despising and saying, what is this that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Right? That's what Tobiah and Geshem and whatever the other guy's name is. What? Sanballat. I forgot the first one. That's why it didn't come out, right? Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem. That's what they said to Nehemiah. What is this that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And look at the words that they accused Jesus Christ of. They accused him, they laughed at him, they mocked him, we already know that, and they said, he's forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, which he didn't do, of course, but, and he's saying that he himself is Christ the king. They wanted to accuse him on a charge of rebelling against the king. Isn't that interesting? Nehemiah is a type of Jesus Christ, by the way. He's a forerunner, a pointing to the man, Jesus, that would come from God himself. It is Jesus' work, by the way. It is him who suffered derision in order to remove shame. That's exactly what Nehemiah is doing back in the Old Testament. He's suffering derision in order to rebuild walls to remove the shame of sin. It is Jesus who did that work. He came to suffer derision to rebuild the wall so that the, suffer, or the, the shame of sin would be removed from us. It is in Jesus that we trust. You should not so much hear me come to you and say, hey, look at the trouble we're in. Let's rise up and build. You should hear Jesus saying, look at the trouble that the church is in for all that I've done for it. Would you come rise up and build? And then I'm looking for a few good men and women like what we're going to read about in the next chapter of Nehemiah next week, Lord willing. A few good men and women who are willing to respond to Jesus with kumbana. Rise, build. Rise, get up. I'm done sitting. I'm done laying down. I'm getting done getting walked over. Rise, let's build. Let's build. Let's restore. Let's no longer suffer derision. In Jesus' church. Father, I pray that this morning your word has not only taught us from history, has not only revealed to us the great things that Nehemiah was pointing forward to in Jesus Christ, but reaches across the pages of time to us today. That there's a stirring among us that we ourselves want to hear our Savior say, 
Look at the trouble we are in. Come, let's rise and build that we may no longer suffer derision. That as we hear Jesus remind us of all that God has done and how God's good hand was upon him, that we respond to you, Jesus, and say, yes, we will rise and build and strengthen our hands for the good work. As we continue to read from the book of Nehemiah, God, next week and the following week, as we, as we look at the building that happened, as we look at how they fought against opposition, as we look at all those things unfold, we want to tear those words out of the book there and, and bring them into our lives and say, God, you must rebuild the walls and gates of my life personally and of my family and of my church and of the church and of my country. If you don't, we are lost. We are in tumult. We are in trouble and shame. And we will remain there. Thank you, Jesus, for the work that you have done. I'm so grateful that when we pray this this morning, that we are not in the position of Nehemiah looking ahead to what you will do. We are in the position of today looking back and say, you have done it. It is finished. You have done it. You have made it possible. You have made the way. You have removed the, the shame of sin from us. You're inviting us to rise. To rise. Just like you, in some ways, God, we're here this morning and we got to hear Jesus come to us just like he did that little girl. They're not dead, they're just sleeping. Talitha kumi. Rise. Rise up. Thank you, Jesus, that you were not in the grave, but you were, you were risen up. You were resurrected. You were brought out of that grave. And you will build your church. We want to make that confession of faith this morning, Jesus, that you are the rock, you are the Messiah, you are the one God sent, his son, you're the savior, you are the Lord, and you will be the reigning king. Someday you will come, and every knee will bow and tongue confess. We pray these things to your glory and your honor, your praise, in Jesus' name, amen.